legacy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the Gospel of John, and uh, I'll be reading from John chapter 12 and verses 20 through 33. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. Let's bow our heads and pray before we open God's word together. <coughs> Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of the Incarnation. We thank you for Emmanuel, Jesus who came to be with us. We could never come to you, you had to come to us. And we thank you for the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit. Give me words to speak well of the baby of Bethlehem, the man of Calvary, our Lord Jesus, in his name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to, him, to myself. He said this to show by what death he was going to die. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant words. Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend from the dead, as recorded for us in John chapter 11. And then we're told in John chapter 11, verse 52, that from then on in, the Jewish authorities made plans to kill Jesus. And in the structure of John's Gospel, it's this moment that becomes, if you like, the turning point. Because from this moment in John's Gospel, the focus in the Gospel increasingly narrows in upon the final realisation of this plot by the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus, until at last we see him nailed to the cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And it's right here at this pivotal moment, having raised Lazarus and entered Jerusalem only a few days before the Passover, when Jesus' betrayal and arrest will take place. It is right here that the Lord Jesus turns to his disciples and he tells them about the mission that was entrusted to him. He tells them why he came. 
he tells them what Christmas is really about. This is what Christmas is really about. It's about the cross. Christmas is ultimately about the cross. Jesus says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And Jesus is telling us, the Lord Jesus is telling us, that in many ways the key to understanding Christmas is to look back at Christmas from Calvary. To look back at Christmas from Calvary. Because Jesus was born to die. Jesus came to die. He was laid in a manger so that one day he would hang on the tree. And I want us for a few moments to look back at Christmas from Calvary as we consider those words of the Lord Jesus in John 12, 27. But for this purpose I have come. For this purpose I have come to this hour. He was born for this hour. I was born for this hour. This hour is why I came. This hour is why I am here. This hour is the point of Christmas. And to understand what Jesus is saying, I believe we need to look at what, it, what he means by this hour. What does this hour refer to? You see, if Christmas happened so that this hour one day would arrive, what does he mean by this hour? And in answer to that question, I want you to notice four things about the hour from John 12, um, 22 to 33. First of all, it is the hour of obedience. It is the hour of Christ's supreme obedience. Secondly, it's not only the hour of obedience, but it's the hour of glory when he brings glory to God the Father. And it is the hour of judgment. It is the hour of judgment, thirdly. And fourthly, it is the hour of salvation. So it's the hour of his obedience. It's the hour he gives glory to the Father. It is the hour of judgment. And it's the hour of salvation. And they're all wrapped up in what he means by this hour. And taken together, they help us understand why Christ came. They help us understand why Christmas happened. Because he was born that one day he might come to this hour of obedience, glory, judgment and salvation. He was born so that he might come to this hour. And we will never understand the significance of the baby in the manger until we look back at it from the vantage point of Calvary. There's a poignant moment in Luke's Gospel as part of the Nativity narrative in Luke 2 that takes place 40 days roughly after Christ was born and Mary and Joseph went up to Jerusalem to present the baby Jesus, if you like, for his dedication. They meet the aged Simeon who takes the baby in his arms and he sings for joy that hymn which we know as the nunc Dimitis, and he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This was the climax of Simeon's long life. He'd been waiting in faith for years for the coming of Messiah, and now he's holding Messiah in his arms. And having sung praises to Almighty God, he pronounced the benediction over Jesus' little family. And it is a lovely scene. And maybe you can have it in your minds. Luke said that Mary and Joseph marvelled at what Simeon said about their baby son. And we can imagine them, if you like, wiping away a tear or two, thanking Simeon for his wonderful, encouraging words. And as they reach out to take their baby back from the aged Simeon's arms, he's not quite done. He's not quite done. Holding Jesus in his arms and fixing Mary in his eyes, he, what he said would have stopped them in their tracks. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There has to be a shadow over that idyllic scene. And the shadow is the shadow of the cross. Because Simeon forewarned Mary that one day she would have to endure, looking up to the same sun that he is cradling in his arms, will grow into mature manhood and he will have nails driven into his hands and feet. Richard Crawshaw's poem, In the shade of death's dark tree stood doleful she. Ah, she, now by none other, named to be known, alas, but sorrow's mother, before her eyes, hers and the whole world's joy, hanging all torn she sees, and in his woes and pangs, pains her pangs and throes, each wound of his from every part, all more at home than her one heart. We just sang, didn't we? Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. So here is Simeon in the temple telling Mary and Joseph, that this born, that baby was born, so that man no more may die. And it will take his death that we might live. It will take his death that we might live. And that's what Jesus is talking about in John 12, 27, when he talks about this hour. Just a little, if you think about what Jesus said about the hour in John's Gospel, John 2 verse 4, when Jesus said rather abruptly to Mary, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 7 verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And again and again, John records that his hour was not yet, his hour was not yet, his hour was not yet, and suddenly he says, the hour has come. 
The hour has come. Calling it the hour implies ordination. It's an ordained and appointed moment set by God in eternity for the accomplishment of his holy will, the accomplishment of his plan of salvation. This is not just any hour. It's my hour, Jesus says. It is my hour. It is the focal point of his life and it's the reason he was born. He was born for this hour. So the why, the point, we hear it, don't we, a lot this time of year and Christians and I, we say it sincerely, I, I know we do, but the reason for the season, what is the real meaning of Christmas? Well, above all, the real meaning is he came to die. He came to save his people from his sins. There's nothing sentimental about that. It took the death of the only sinless man to wash away my sin and yours. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and lamb are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail! The word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. That is what it means by the hour. The hour was established for Jesus before he was born and all the paths of his life, every step he took from Bethlehem to Galilee and now to Jerusalem lead to this hour. So Jesus' hour is a promised gift for us and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, secured from eternity, ordained in the present purposes of God, and it comes to pass in this hour of Calvary. So, first of all, as I just said, this is the hour of obedience. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. So Jesus, he knows, he's in distress. His sweat becomes like drops of blood as he contemplates what is waiting for him in the atonement. He knows what is coming, agony of body and soul as the wrath and the curse of God is laid upon him in my place. And the thought of it made him shrink as any right thinking or moral person would shrink from. It would be perverse to relish suffering like this. Everyone made in the image of God would recoil from pain and death that are only intruders into God's perfect world. And Christ, the perfect one, the image of the invisible God, sinless, holy, and he recoils from the horror of becoming sin for us. If he did not recoil, he would not be a perfect human being. But he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners. And it is in his purity that he shrinks back from the sin-bearing that the cross required of him. And yet though he might prefer to be saved from this hour, he prays that the Father would be glorified in the accomplishment of the hour. There is an echo here of Gethsemane. 
He prayed in those same words again. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. And Jesus knows that this is why he came. He knows this is why the incarnation happened. This is why Christmas was what Christmas is about. And every day, from the manger to the cross, it's always been about the surrender to the design of God, even though that design involved the cross. So do please see the obedience of Jesus. His perfect humanity recoiled from the suffering to come, but whose commitment to the will of the Father overruled and governed his life. So he bowed to the eternal plan and embraced the cross. It is the great distinguishing mark of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ that at every step, from nursing in Mary's arms to being nailed to the cross, Jesus obeyed. He perfectly obeyed. He was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. Because it is only in his obedience that my disobedience can find refuge, salvation and rescue. It's only in his obedience that my disobedience can be forgiven. Only under the Lord Jesus' submission to the will of the Father can we, who like sheep have all gone astray and turned each one to his own way, can find deliverance. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So the hour of obedience, the hour he was born to fulfil, in perfect submission to the will of the Father. Secondly, and this may seem paradoxical to us at first, it is not only the hour of obedience, but it's the hour of glory. For the hour has come in verse 23 for the Son of Man to be what? Verse 23, we expect it to say to be crucified. We expect it to say to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, tortured, emulated and torn. But the Lord Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Or verse 27 again, for this purpose I've come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. The Lord Jesus is still thinking about the cross. That is what his hour is about, remember. But we do not tend to think about the cross as particularly glorious, do we? The birth of Christ that first Christmas, that's glorious. That's comfortable. It's easy to see glory. Glory in Gabriel's annunciation to the Virgin. Glory in the miraculous conception and birth of the Christ child. Glory in those angelic choirs that split the sky over the shepherds' heads. Glory is everywhere in the birth of Christ. Sing these glorious Christmas carols. It lifts our hearts. We see glory everywhere. But when you come to Calvary, where's the glory? There's no angels. There's no choirs. There's no miracles left. Violence, suffering, darkness, defeat. But it's there, Jesus says. 
far greater than at the manger the Father was glorified. It is there. He was glorified. And that's what the Father himself says in answer to Christ's prayer. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Verse 28. And at the, at the cross, at the cross of Jesus, the Father will crown every other manifestation of his glory in the life of his Son and surpass them all because at the cross, amid the gloom, the darkness and death, that peace on earth would be secured. It was at the cross that peace on earth was secured. It was amongst the gore and the agony of the crucifixion that Gabriel's words to Mary would be fulfilled. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There, there, at Calvary, the plan of the Father to redeem a people for himself out of the mass of fallen humanity would be accomplished where we least expect us expect to find it. The Father's name is glorified. The reason the skies erupted in angelic song when shepherds watched their flocks at night by the birth of Jesus, the reason they sang the hallelujah chorus, was not simply because God became a man in Jesus, though that's reason enough for endless praises, certainly. But the full reason the angels sang is because the God-man who now has been born would one day die to bring the Father's plan to full fulfilment. That's why they sang he died to save you, to save you as you trust in him. That's what makes Christmas glorious, the cross. It's not the cutesy story about a baby, it's about the design, it's about the mission, it's about the errand on which Christ was sent, that by his obedience and by the shed blood, he would rescue you, and by rescuing you, would bring glory and praise to God. Thirdly, it's the hour of obedience. It's the hour of glory. And it's the hour of judgment. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Remember those words of that Old man Simeon, that day in the temple to Mary, as he, when she brought her baby boy for dedication, Sim, if you remember Simeon said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's why he came. The hour of Christ's climatic sufferings will force all people everywhere into one or two groups. I often say this because it's so true. I often say it's so true. The cross of Christ forces everyone everywhere into one or two groups. Not three, not four, but two. Everyone in this room belongs to one or two groups. There is no neutral. There is no neutral. Christmas happened, the nativity 
in its beauty and its sweetness, happen to bring about judgment. Because the cross demands a response from everyone. You can't opt out of a response to the cross. You can't opt out. It forces us to decide and on the basis of that decision we have to give an account. Judgment is not about some future distant event. It's a present reality in the cross of Christ forcing us to make a decision. Will you bow to the one who was born and grew and obeyed and bled and died for your deliverance? Will you bow the knee to Jesus? Or will you harden your heart like Pharaoh and reject him? Will you bow your knee to the baby of Bethlehem, the man of Calvary? Or will you reject him? So the design of God that first Christmas was to bring us to the point of decision. To bring us to the point of decision. What will you do? What will you do? Not the person sitting next to you. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the babe of Bethlehem who became the man of Calvary? Of course it was not just the judgment of the world that the cross accomplishes. Jesus says of this hour, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this, the world, this world be cast out. You see, Satan was defeated. He was bound at the cross. And just like the apparent paradox that the horror of the cross would be the place where the Father was most glorified, so too in what appears to be abject defeat at the cross is Christ's greatest triumph. It's his greatest triumph. In what looks like Satan's victory. When the power of evil vented all of its rage on the head of the perfect son of God. Precisely there the power of evil was broken. Precisely there the power of evil was broken. At the cross... As Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 15, speaking about supernatural and demonic powers, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The devil is not God's equal, my friend. He is a defeated enemy. Christ won the victory on the cross. That is what his hour secured. It's the hour of obedience. It's the hour of glory. And it's the hour of judgment. And it's the hour of salvation, my friend. It's the hour of salvation. The cross was the hour of obedience. Yes, it was the hour of glory. It was the hour of judgment. But the cross was the hour of salvation. He's talking about his victory in that hour. And his victory will bring about the judgment of the world. His victory will bring about the overthrow of the devil. And what is more, verse 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Remember that bronze serpent that Moses lifted up on the, on the pole in the wilderness, Numbers 21. The people rebelled against God. He sent them a plague of fiery serpents. They were dying from the bites of those snakes. But if they looked 
to the bronze serpent, trust in the promise of God, just trust in God's promise, just trust him, they would be healed. And so Jesus is lifted up on the cross. He was made a curse for us. He was the object of divine condemnation in our place. He was with the condemnation that my sin deserves, that your sin deserves, that all, all who look on him might be saved. And notice in the text that deliverance is not a mere possibility. Jesus did not say, this is why I came to die to give people a chance. He didn't say, this is why Christmas happened, so that maybe, maybe, maybe somewhere someone might take a chance and come to me. No, he said that when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. People from every walk of life, from every ethnicity and pedigree, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, purchased at the cross, saved, secure forever by Jesus Christ. That is what Christmas is about. There is nothing I like better than to preach the cross at Christmas. Because that is why Jesus came. In the end, the gathering in a great multitude that no one can muster from every nation, from every tribe, from all peoples, nations and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying, salvation belongs to the God, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is cosmic in scope, it has the praise of God in view and it is not at all in any doubt. There are many things that we can doubt today, many things that we should doubt if you look at you know, uh, people around us and politicians, etc. But this is in no doubt. This is in no doubt. One day, every single one of those for whom Christ died, every one of the ransomed church of God will be saved to sin no more. That is the gospel and that is why Christ came. And the ground of your assurance, the, the ground of your security, the ground of your confidence, it's not that we are pious, that we're devoted, that we're, that we're evangelistic, that we're faithful, that we're prayerful, that we're moral. That is not the grounds of our assurance. It's not that we feel deeply the power of the truth in our hearts. That's not the ground of our assurance. It's not that we are different from other people. Although if we are blood-bought Christians, some, these things will all be true of us to some extent. But they're not the grounds and basis of our confidence before God. Our spiritual security, our peace, our hope, our certainty, our assurance lies here. Jesus bought, was born... Jesus obeyed, Jesus died, he rose again, and he reigns. And his work in securing our salvation can never be undermined, can never be defeated, and can never be hindered. The Lord Jesus will save his people. Every single sinner 
who trust in Jesus, no matter how weak, fearful, lonely, upset you may be, everyone is remarkably secure forever. Because the baby of Bethlehem became the man of Calvary. Because the baby of Bethlehem became the man of Calvary and he shed his blood for them. And so they will not, cannot, never be lost. What a gift. What a gift was given that first Christmas. What a gift. How firm a foundation. What a gift. It's a costly gift and it's focused on this hour. It's focused on his sufferings, his obedience. It's a glorious gift. It brought glory to God. It's a victorious gift. It overthrew through the devil and it brought judgment to this world, this sin-sick world. And it was a sure gift that everyone who trusts themselves to the care and mercy of God in the baby of Bethlehem would be saved and secure forever. And when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. That's why Christmas is worth celebrating because this is why he was born. This is why he came. This is the purpose of Christmas. And the vital question for us is whether the baby of Bethlehem, the man of Calvary, is a gift that you're prepared to receive today. Don't let a single minute go by without embracing the gift that is the baby of Bethlehem who became the man of Calvary. May God give you grace to embrace the baby of Bethlehem, the man of Calvary, as your saviour and as your Lord. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen.